May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So today is the fourth Sunday in Lent, which is called in Latin, Laetare Sunday, from the Latin word which means rejoice. So it's one of the two Sundays, we have one in Advent and one in Lent, where we ease up on our, on our penitential season a little bit, symbolized by um, toning down the violet, the, not violent, but violet vestments, by mixing in a little bit of joyful white, which gives us these wonderful rose-colored vestments. Um, I'm assured this is rose and not pink. <laughs> Some vestments are more rose than others. We'll just put it that way. (laughs) And so we do this at the halfway point in our uh, penitential season. So today is that halfway point in Lent. And we need to be reminded that the joys of Easter are indeed on the way. So this name, Latare, or Rejoicing Sunday, is based on the introit that we that we sang just a little while ago, the introit for the Sunday, which is from Isaiah 66 and Psalm 122. In the uh, translation we use when we're chanting it, it's rendered like this. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be ye glad for her, all ye that delight in her. Exult and sing for joy with her, all ye that in sadness mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. I was glad when they said unto me, we will go into the house of the Lord. So as is often the case in scripture, Jerusalem here is presented as a symbol or a type of the kingdom of God. And we're mixing that with language of, of, of birth, right? Language of birth. And so when we're thinking about Uh, these passages, uh, Jerusalem, it's a symbol of the world to come, a symbol of the kingdom of God. We look forward to our redemption. We look forward to the end of our exile. We look forward to the banishment of sin and death and the curse. We look forward to being in God's presence and in his house forever. Our epistle reading today from Galatians 4 also uses Jerusalem as a symbol of God's kingdom. So please turn in your Bibles to Galatians 4, beginning at verse 21, Galatians 4, 21. You can find this on page 130 in your prayer book or page 915 in the Pew Bible, Galatians 4, 21. I, I say the address so many times because... Uh, An old preacher once said, if you don't do that, all the husbands are going to look to their wife and say, what did he say? And so that's for y'all, gentlemen. (laughs) Verse 21. St. Paul writes, tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. 
So in some ways, our reading today starts right in the middle of a thought. The entire epistle to the Galatians is addressing the Galatians' embrace of legalism, a false gospel that essentially says, okay, maybe we were brought into God's family by grace through faith, but we're kept in the family by our performance. And specifically, the Galatians had fallen into a form of legalism that we often call Judaizing. This, in this form, specific good works that will supplement God's grace are the works of the Old Testament law. So for the Galatians, Jesus had become something of an afterthought. He was just the cherry on top. The main thing, the substance of the meal for the Galatians was obedience to Torah, obedience to the law of Moses and its resulting traditions. So St. Paul had spent three and a half chapters by this point making the case that the new covenant changes our relationship with God's law. And then earlier in chapter four, just before our passage, he had been saying that under the new covenant, we've been adopted as God's children and we are not merely his servants. With the coming then of God's only begotten son, we then as a whole, as a group, as God's people, we've reached legal maturity and we have access to our spiritual inheritance. As such, we are not slaves to the world, the flesh, or even to the law. We're free because we have a new relationship with God. And so then we get to our passage. In our passage, St. Paul makes his case against legalism by making an allegory from the law of Moses itself. Isn't that neat? He's, you know, they're abusing the law of Moses, so where does he go? He goes to the law of Moses, right? In Genesis chapter 15, if you remember the story, and really it begins a few chapters earlier in Genesis 12, but kind of unfolds over several chapters. God makes a promise to Abraham that he would have a son despite his old age. And God promises to make for himself a chosen people, a God make his own family really, uh, from that son and from his descendants, which is going to culminate, as we know later on, in the birth of the Messiah, through whom the Lord would bless the entire earth and reconcile all people back to him. But Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were very old, and Sarah's childbearing years were far behind her. So Sarah figures she ought to take matters into her own hands, and she gives Abraham her handmaid Hagar to be something of a surrogate mother. So Hagar would have Abraham's son on Sarah's behalf, is the way the plan would go. Abraham and Sarah here then tried to make God's supernatural promises happen using natural and fleshly means. And at first the scheme seems to work, right? Hagar does indeed bear Abraham a son, Ishmael. But a few chapters later, God appears to Abraham again to clarify things a little bit. He reestablishes the covenant with promises of descendants specifically through Sarah. And God does promise to bless Ishmael, Hagar's son, but it's not through him that God is going to carry out the covenant. Rather, it's through Sarah's son, and we, we would later find out his name is Isaac. God does then keep his promise because 
Again, fast forward a chapter or two, and Sarah conceives. Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah, even though they are well past their 90s. I don't think we have anybody here in the room that's, that's in their 90s yet, but y'all can imagine <laughs> how that may be. So in our passage today, St. Paul says that this Old Testament story can be seen as an allegory for the, the way that the new covenant promises play out. He says we can't attain God's promises using fleshly means. We can't attain God's promises by taking matters into our own hands. We cannot attain the promises of the new covenant by means of the old covenant's law. And in fact, to attempt to do so is to become enslaved to the law. We can, because we cannot keep the law's perfect demands, we end up indebted to the law with no escape. We become like Hagar, bondsfolk. We become slaves. Paul says then that we are not to look to our own performance. We're not to look to our own keeping of God's law which is symbolized by earthly Jerusalem, but rather we're to look to the promises of God symbolized by the heavenly Jerusalem. St. Paul then quotes from Isaiah 54, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. One of the reoccurring themes in scripture is God showing pity on the barren and giving them miraculous children. So Sarah giving birth to Isaac, that's one of the examples that we see. The same thing happens with Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and with Isaac's son, Jacob, with his wife, Rachel. All three of the patriarchs of Israel end up having, uh, having miraculous births, God, God opening the barren womb. We see it again with Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, who would be so pivotal in anointing King David and in establishing the Old Testament kingdom. God carrying out his plans through miraculous pregnancies is a major theme in scripture, and it culminates in the Blessed Virgin Mary conceiving our Lord Jesus, which uh, if you didn't uh, notice, we did celebrate this past Friday and the Feast of the Annunciation. The church, then, similarly is a mother who gives birth by a miraculous conception. As the scripture says, we, the children of the church, we were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, but God gave us new life in his son Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children to the bond, of the bondwoman, but of the free. So back in Genesis, Hagar and Ishmael, they had a problem with Sarah and Isaac. Before Ishmael's even born, Hagar is, is, starts mistreating her mistress because Hagar had conceived and Sarah had not. And Hagar gets kicked out of the household for it. But eventually she returns. She's reconciled to Abraham and Sarah. Um, Ishmael is born 
and he's raised. But we find as the boys get older, Ishmael's doing the same kind of thing to Isaac that Hagar had done to, to Sarah. This time, Hagar and Ishmael are dismissed for good. While God promises Hagar that Ishmael will be blessed on Abraham's account, we don't hear from Hagar ever again in the story. She's, she's out of the story at this point. And Ishmael, we don't hear from him again until the death of Abraham when he and Isaac bury their father. And we don't hear anything else from him. That's, that's the end of their part in the big story. Again, we find St. Paul's giving us an allegory. The nature of the flesh is to run roughshod over the spirit. That's part of why we have Lenten fasting and almsgiving and prayer. We are disciplining the flesh to go against its nature. We're training the flesh to be subject to the spirit. If we're trying to to attain God's promises by our own performance, we're going to lose sight of of those promises and we're just going to focus on the performance. If we think we can win God's favor by obedience, it's our obedience, or rather our pretense at obedience, let's be honest here. We're going to be lying to ourselves and to everybody else. But it's going to be that obedience or that pretense that's going to be elevated and God's going to be kind of made an afterthought. He's going to be forgotten. That's just the nature of legalism. That's the natural tendency of our inner Pharisee, something that just about everybody who's religious has. You know, if you're coming to church every Sunday, you're probably battling an inner Pharisee sometimes, right? Scripture tells us that the only way to true obedience is to trust God's promises. Our good works are a byproduct of our faith not the other way around. They are the fruit of our faith. They don't cause faith. Even when it comes to our religious practices, the flesh must be subjected to the spirit because if we focus on the law, we're never going to keep it. And ultimately, St. Paul tells us that the Christian life is one of freedom, not one of bondage. The life of faith is not to be obtained by bondage to the law. Now, you would think that the result of this would be lawlessness and wickedness. Okay, if I'm not worrying about my obedience, I'm just going to be disobedient, right? But St. Paul, in the next chapter, chapter 5, he reminds us not to use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, but rather the freedom that we have is supposed to result in love for God and love for each other. That's how you get that fruit of good works, that fruit of obedience, because focusing on God's promises leads to love, which leads to good works. By way of analogy, if you know that your wife loves you and she's never going to leave you, that should not lead you to mistreat her. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Rather, knowing that she has that love for you should lead you to love her more. When we, the same thing is true for God and his promises. Knowing God loves us leads us to love him more. Not to focus on the checklist of am I doing the right thing. So when we think 
of God's promises, we can see that they are indeed a cause to rejoice. The miraculous new birth that God has wrought in us brings us to a true Laetare Sunday. It also brings to us relief. The other name for the fourth Sunday in Lent is Dominica Refrectionis, the Sunday of Refreshment. And that's based on our gospel reading of the feeding of the 5,000. When Christ sets us free, he also feeds us. He feeds us with his word, and he feeds us with himself in the sacrament. Again, this is a function of his grace. This is by his grace. We don't deserve it. We cannot attain it. We come to his table unworthy, as our liturgy constantly reminds us. This comes purely from his love. As we prayed in the collect, grant we beseech the almighty God that we who for our evil deeds do worthily deserve to be punished by the comfort of thy grace may mercifully be relieved through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we move into the second half of Lent, don't let the rigors and disciplines be the main focus. They're important, but that's not your focus in Lent. Rather, look to God and to his grace. Look to his promises and you will be relieved, even in the midst of doing these disciplines. Because remember, you are the child of a promise, not the child of bondage. We say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.